from day one, people wanted to play the Bluebird, and that wasn't because it was the Bluebird. That was just because there were people in Nashville trying to get record deals, trying to get their songs heard. And they would have played in a doghouse if it had a sign outside that said, Writer's Nights. And so we had wonderful people playing all the time. The most wonderful was Don Schlitz because he started bringing in uh, a show he called Don Schlitz and his so-called friends. It was so quiet in there, and people were hanging on to every lyric, every note of the music, and uh, it was like the room was made for that. And it wasn't that much more crowded than any of the other nights, but it was the most money I'd made. And I just thought, writer's nights. I want to do more writer's nights. Don and Fred Knobloch, who had been playing very nicely together on stage, came in one Sunday night and said, we think we should set up in a circle in the middle of the room and play like we're in somebody's living room, and we'll call it in the round. And when everybody sobered up the next day, I remembered that, and I said, okay, let's do it. And we set up that way, and it was magic. Now, I will say, during the break, Tom Schuyler said to me, I never want to do this again. They're breathing down my neck. They're right on top of me. And then by the end of the night, same guy said to me, I never want to play any other way than this again. That moment of musical invention at a strip mall with lousy parking put a pen in the Music City map. Today on Circle Back, the hatching of the Bluebird Cafe. Hi, I'm Amy Curland, and I am the founder of the Bluebird Cafe. So we moved down here to Nashville when I was eight years old, going into the fourth grade. My father was a Juilliard-trained violinist, and he had heard you could get work in the recording studios and make some extra money on the side. It was during the height of the country politan sound where everything was sweetened with strings. He uh, worked on the Johnny Cash television show and all of the awards shows. He traveled with Neil Young when Neil Young was using a string section. My mother decided that he deserved a sabbatical, and uh, we moved to London for about a year, where my parents went around to the museums and to the shows, and we kids went to public school in London. I think my parents did a great job raising us. They always took us to see and do interesting things. Going across Europe in a car that broke down on the final day of our trip, that was pretty amazing. We had a lot of great experiences and got to spend a lot of time with our parents. Her mom was also a strong role model, converting a downtown warehouse into art maker studios. There was stained glass and woodworking and probably one of Nashville's first 
health food, vegetarian restaurants, and then she got very involved in politics. Even running for office. She ran for mayor in 1971. She was the only pro-busing candidate, and she really had a children's crusade of uh, kids my age who helped her with that campaign, and that was a lot of fun. College took her to D.C., and she took a detour from what she had planned. I wanted to be a lawyer and then go into politics. I wanted to be the first woman president. And uh, so I chose George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And maybe my first year, I got a little bit onto the pre-law track. And boy, did I lose interest in that quickly. And really decided what I wanted to do was open a restaurant. I've always been interested in cooking and eating. So I finished my college career there with a degree in American literature and American studies. By that time, I already was interested in going to cooking school and seeing what I could do about opening a restaurant. I started working in restaurants. I worked uh, at Daltz. I was part of the opening crew there. And I had an ex-boyfriend who had worked at Daltz with me, and uh, he said he would come over and be the kitchen manager. And the guitar-playing boyfriend said, well, why don't you just put in a stage? Open a restaurant, put in a stage, we'll play music, you can do your cooking food thing too. And uh, that's when I started looking around for a location to do that crazy thing. Nashville was far more accessible to somebody without money back then than it is today. Uh, so I had a little bit of um, inheritance I had from my grandmother. And I looked at locations, uh, looked out on uh, Highway 100. There was a place that had been a bar out there, looked around Music Row, and then I found the space that is the Bluebird. When I was growing up, it was Yates Pharmacy, which had a, a grill, you know, hamburgers, cheeseburgers, root beer floats. Uh, in the basement was Circle Theater, where my mother had volunteered as a props person. I had driven by there every day of my life, and that just seemed like the right place to be, even though, you know, I really hadn't thought about space or acoustics or anything like that. Those things, uh, I was just lucky that I was able to get that place. I rented it, and within a few months, uh, it went for sale, and my father bought it for me. And over the next three or four months, everybody I knew came over to help paint and move furniture and screw together tables, and my mother made tablecloths, and the friend who was the cook helped me develop a menu, and we managed to open the doors June 4th, 1982, and went immediately into this schizophrenic situation where we served ladies lunch on flowered tablecloths during the day, serving tomatoes stuffed with, you know, tuna salad or chicken salad and pretty little desserts. And then when lunch was over, we would whip the tablecloths off the table, 
put up the speakers that had to be, you know, they were 70 pounds and had to go up on top of stands and get ready for live music at night. And it really was like running two different places. During the day, we had a great lunch crowd. Minnie Pearl came for lunch all the time at Chet Atkins. It was one of the nicer restaurants in Green Hills. And that was fine. If it hadn't been for the parking, I think we would have really done a very strong business. But we filled up every table many, many days. And then in the evening, very strong business, you know. Our seats were full on the weekends. Uh, certain shows did well. I had no idea what I was doing, and I was terrified, and I had never been a server, so I couldn't manage servers. And I had been a cook in restaurants, but I had never done that. And a friend advised me that there was absolutely nothing wrong with going back and learning what I didn't know, even though I was already in business. Nashville State Community College has I believe to this day, a series of adult education classes that take place at night. So I started taking those classes. And the first one I took, owning and operating your own small business. Wonderful. Then the next one I took was how to manage people. I took some other classes on the side that the National Restaurant Association offered sort of weekend classes on management and inventory and that sort of thing. Then I took a class on advertising and then the most important class I took was a class on marketing. We'll try not to overdo the obvious puns, but that's how the Bluebird took off. They taught me from the very first night that you cannot be everything to everybody. You cannot just shotgun out everything you want to do and see what sticks. You need to figure out what you like to do and what's working and do that. This business boot camp came five years after Amy opened the doors and it opened her eyes. And at the same time, a woman who was a server at the Bluebird was in school at Belmont and she was taking a class that wanted her to do a project around marketing. And we joined forces to really look into what we thought the Bluebird should be. And we did surveys of the customers uh, and we talked to everybody. And within just a matter of weeks, I had discovered that I much preferred doing the live music venue at night, that the daytime lunch business, it was hard to get staff. It was, again, the parking was difficult. And I just decided I'm going to close down the lunch business and this place is going to be a music venue. So how does one find musicians in Nashville? Sounds like a setup to a joke. But in this case, Amy decided to delegate. I was dating a guitar player who had worked with Crystal Gale, and he knew all the, the people in town, Pebble Daniel and Heather Ruth and the great people of that era who played the clubs all the time. 
And he hooked me up really with Hugh Bennett, who had been on staff over at the Exit Inn. So Hugh knew a lot of musicians. So I hired Hugh to help me get the music together because I didn't know enough people. But from day one, people wanted to play the Bluebird. And that wasn't because it was the Bluebird. That was just because there were people in Nashville trying to get record deals, trying to get their songs heard. And they would have played in a doghouse if it had a sign outside that said, Writer's Nights. And so Kathy Matea was an up-and-coming artist at that time. She played on Saturday nights through the fall of 1982. And Steve Earle was an up-and-coming uh, artist, and he played. Uh, Don Everly was a, you know, a huge star, but he had a fun little band he liked to play with. So he played. So we opened in June, and in July, Hugh put together a writer's night. I had no idea even what that was. And it was uh, a benefit for something called World Hunger Year, and he brought out six or eight songwriters, each to do three songs. One of them was Kevin Welch, who turned out to be a marvelous hit songwriter, a great performer. And uh, it was the moment that I knew a little bit more about what the Bluebird ought to be. I think the other thing that I learned in that marketing class that was a huge aha moment is who I was marketing the Bluebird to. And it turned out I was not marketing the Bluebird to audiences, to people come see shows at my place. What I needed to do was market the Bluebird to the musicians. It had to become the place of choice to play. There were two things people were complaining about. One was the cigarette smoke, and the other was, it's too loud here, you know? And it's true, it's a small room, and I had full bands on stage. Uh, Jonelle Mosser was one of our early bands, Love Her, and Glad She Still Plays. Uh, the other person who came and played a lot, uh, he had only had one hit. Don Schlitz had written The Gambler, and uh, he would play once a month on a Tuesday night, nobody came to see him except for the staff of the Japanese restaurant where his wife at the time worked. And so there would be all these Japanese people and Bluebird staff, and we would all sit around and listen to Don and admire his music. That Writer's Night for World Hunger Year did two wonderful things. It was so quiet in there, and people were hanging on to every lyric, every note of the music, and uh, it was just the most comfortable thing. It was like the room was made for that. And it wasn't that much more crowded than any of the other nights, but it was the most money I'd made. And I just thought, writer's nights. I want to do more writer's nights. I'm going to pivot away from bands playing covers, but I'm going to pivot towards getting more writer's night shows in here. You might say, by the grace of dawn, things really turned around. He started bringing in uh, a show he called Don Schlitz and his so-called friends. And her, his friends were Vince Gill and the Sweethearts of the Rodeo and Tom Schuyler, who wrote 16th Avenue, and Fred Knobloch. 
who had had a bunch of hits. And Don and Fred Knobloch, who had been playing very nicely together on stage, came in one Sunday night and said, we think we should set up in a circle in the middle of the room and play like we're in somebody's living room, and we'll call it in the round. And when everybody sobered up the next day, I remembered that, and I said, okay, let's do it. And the next time that they were booked, supposed to be on stage, I said, you want to do this in the round thing. And we set up that way, and it was magic. Now, I will say, during the break, Tom Schuyler said to me, I never want to do this again. They're breathing down my neck. They're right on top of me. And then by the end of the night, same guy said to me, I never want to play any other way than this again. We didn't have dressing rooms. We didn't have a cheese platter. Any of that stuff, we had the more important thing, which was an absolutely silent room where people were really, really listening. And we also had people from the music industry coming down to see shows. And that led to stars being born time and again. The publishers came out. Now, they didn't come out just on a whim. They mostly came out because they had heard that somebody they were interested was going to play. But the nice thing was, when you're in the round, there's four people playing, so they might come to see this one over here, but get excited about this one over here. 1987, big, big year. Somebody set up a uh, showcase night for the Nashville Music Association, and one of the people who was supposed to perform got sick, and they swapped in a young kid in a cowboy hat from Oklahoma, and that guy was Garth Brooks. And Garth had already been told, nah, we don't want you, we don't hear it. But there was a guy from Capitol Records who was there to hear somebody else. And Garth got up and did, he did his songs, and Lynn Schultz said, oh my God, we made a terrible mistake. We want to sign you right now. And that was the beginning of Garth Brooks' record career. And the same night, John Vesner played a song that his wife, Kathy Matea, had been playing in shows but had never put on a record album because everybody said it was too slow and too depressing and too long. And John got up and played that song, and, well, everybody in the room got goosebumps, and most of them cried. And the people in the record business, and particularly Kathy and her producers, said, oh, this isn't just an end-of-the-show song. This has the potential to make a difference on an album. And they put it on the album. And the song of the year is... And Kathy went on to win all the major music awards that year with that song. Where have you been? I mean, the Bluebird is sort of famous for being, you know, I don't know, about half the people on the charts in the 90s, but a good number of them 
came up through the Bluebird, and a lot of people on the charts now came through as songwriters, which is absolutely great. So I guess the other huge artist would be Taylor Swift, who, you know, came to play when she was about 13 or 14. Now, there's a case where somebody was interested in her but wanted to see uh, how she would do in front of an audience and put her on stage at the Bluebird uh, during an early show, and she just she just killed. It was just amazing. And she's very much associated with the Bluebird because she was discovered there, and because, like Garth, they have both been very good friends to the Bluebird. They come back. These people don't, they don't forget. In a moment, the club owner puts on a show of her own. All right, I'll tell you the story that I had always been told all my life that I couldn't sing. From the time when I was six years old, singing in the back of the car, and my sister said to my mother, you know, why does Amy's voice squeak when she sings? That's a, you know, that's a trauma moment. And so many people lose their willingness or ability to sing because somebody hurts their feelings when they're a child, and singing is one of the great joys. Are you building and growing your own business? Are you trying to do it all alone? Here at the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, or as we call it, the EC, this is your one stop to help you grow your business. You can get advice from successful entrepreneurs who have been there and done that. Many who've had exits from multi-million dollar companies. You can also learn from C-suite business professionals in Nashville's top industries. Or you can simply find space to work or hold meetings. No matter the stage of business, you'll get help to meet your needs. Whether it's learning the fundamentals of creating a business plan, to writing a sales program, or securing introductions to potential customers. The entrepreneurial process is full of obstacles that can be challenging for a founder to overcome alone. So join the EC community to accelerate learning and growth for your business. Learn more at ec.co. All right, back to the show. In Nashville, the way the music clubs had always operated was the way I operated, which was that the musicians got 100% of what comes in at the door, but they pay their own expenses, which would be the sound person and the door person. I followed the model that I had learned from going out to venues, you know, Bands start at 9 o'clock. Do I know why bands start at 9 o'clock? I don't know, but it's always been done that way. And over the years, um, laws have changed a lot. The state wants taxes on that door money. They do not consider that the musicians are in their own business of selling tickets. Um, They think the club is selling tickets. That's not how it's done in New York City or most anywhere else, most places, uh, even probably city winery, what they do is they offer the musician a certain amount of money, and then they may get a percentage over uh, that. But other venues make money on the musicians. The Bluebird does not do that. Once the brand was established, the business side did grow. 
and Amy was open to spreading its wings. Okay, I couldn't resist. As long as the core concept of songs and writers stayed intact. Definitely wanted to spread the word about songwriters and how great they were, and we absolutely did it. Uh, I did a show in Atlanta, a venue that was called the Tabernacle. We did a year at Disney World once a month. Started doing shows in Sundance, uh, Utah, at the Sundance Resorts, and that's still going on. We did a TV show, radio show, uh, wrote a book, all of those things. But I was very... um, I ran that place myself as the manager. I could not do that and do the big business picture of it. And so all of those wonderful things that happened, the TV show, the movie, The Thing Called Love, they happened in my era. They happened mostly because of luck and hard work. The wonderful thing about The Bluebird is that it did not It's not like it was a fad that came and went. It has been different through the years. It probably used to be more of a hangout for songwriters because it wasn't so crowded that the songwriters couldn't get in. But our Monday night open mic show and the Sunday night show, they still provide this very same service they always have. And that service is not to get to play on stage. It's for those writers to interact with other writers, other new people to town, so that they can create a community for themselves. I am more than anything an idealist. I want things to be the best they can be for everybody. I think that one of the things that's wrong with the world today in general is we live in a greed economy. It's not a capitalist economy. It's a greed economy. The day that the owners of companies started making a million times more than their employees was a terrible day. Business owners used to be part of the business. They made more, but they didn't go live in gated complexes and go around the world in their private jets while their employees couldn't afford to rent an apartment. I am not that kind of capitalist. I am not a socialist. Close. I absolutely believe there ought to be more equity, and I think the world would be a better place for it. By now, you've realized that Amy Curland is a special breed of entrepreneur and she tends to trust her own gut and signs out of the blue. So I'm driving around town one afternoon, and I am worn out on the Bluebird. Now, I was not worn out on talking to musicians on the phone and booking them. I was not worn out on performances and seeing people's songs go to the top of the charts, but man, was I worn out on fixing plumbing and worrying about people showing up to work. And I think I had hit a place of close to burnout. I'm not sure. Probably had I been better at delegating, maybe I wouldn't have felt the need to do something else with the Bluebird to find a different way. But anyway, I'm in the car, and like a bolt of lightning from the sky, into my brain flew the words, give it to the Songwriters Association. 
Yes, the creator of a long-standing, profitable business and unique cultural experience truly was thinking, give it away. Give it to the Songwriters Association. And when I got back to the office, I called same friend, Erica Willem Nichols, who was my friend from the survey back in the day, who's running the Bluebird now. And I said, what do you think about me giving it to the Songwriters Association? And she said, well, you know, let's think about it. Let's talk about it. I mean, she's really my dear friend. Uh, I'll talk to Bart Herbison, who's the CEO of the Songwriters Association. And over the course of the next eight or nine months, they very gently shepherded me through the process. They never forced it. They never said, well, you said you were going to give it to us. They never said, you have to do this. They just kept up with me. What would it look like if we did this? How would this happen? Et cetera, et cetera. And um, they pretty much insisted that I not give it to them. They insisted on paying me something less than I would have gotten at market, but I wasn't interested in selling it to somebody who would have turned it into a karaoke bar or a sports bar. If there was one thing that was important to me if I was going to leave the Bluebird is I wanted it to stay the same and I wanted it to have longevity. I want the Bluebird to be there for a long time. And I had to find a way to make that happen and the Songwriters Association was the right way. So they paid me something and not only that, I still own the building, so I collect some rent on it but they also insisted on giving me a royalty because their whole job is to help creators make money on their creations. And they didn't think it would be right for me as the creator of that place not to make money on my creation. I get great satisfaction out of Seeing any songwriter who played at the Bluebird before they were anybody go on to have a career, but those people who actually worked for me, that is a joy. It's Music City Sings at Six with a song suggested, requested by my mother, Barbara. COVID started and Minton Sparks, the great storyteller, started a little project and she said everybody should get out, go to the end of their driveway, sing a song for their neighbors and tape it and put it on Facebook. And I thought, I'm going to do that. I can't sing, but we are all locked up and I'm just going to go out there and sing a song. And Minton was assigning the songs and so the first one was If I have a, Had a Hammer. It's the hammer of justice, it's the bell of freedom, it's the song about the love between my brothers and my sisters. Oh, no, we were all wearing dirty sweatshirts at that point. Nobody was even brushing their hair. And not only did I sing this song, but some neighbors walked by and we socially distanced, but somebody I went to high school with sang with me and put it on Facebook. And what do you know? 20 people commented, oh, that was so great. You looked so happy. Please do it again. So I did it again the next night and the next night. Now I was choosing my own songs, and I decided to sing a song from Cinderella, and I put on a costume. And every night for the next 
475 nights. I put on a costume. I learned a song in the afternoon. I rubber banded my telephone to the side of my mailbox and turned it on and recorded everything from the Beatles to Broadway shows to songs from the 1850s. People started coming over and singing with me. Wake up, wake up, you sleepyhead, get up, get out of bed, cheer up, the sun is red, live, love, laugh and be happy, what if I... It was the delight of the COVID era, and I always said it was a COVID project and I would stop when COVID ended. Listen for hours and hours... And I chose to stop doing it the night the Bluebird reopened, which was in July of 2021. They were having our original four guys, you know, Don Schlitz, Fred Novlock, Tom Schuyler, and at this point, uh, the fourth was Tony Arada. I put on an evening gown, and I stood across the street from the Bluebird. There's no business like show. And I sang There's No Business Like Show Business, and that was the end of my... 475 nights of Music City Sings at Six. Let's go on with the show. Let's go on with the show. And if one thing I've learned from this is that singing is really joyful. Don't let anybody tell you you can't sing. Just get up. Sing for your name. Bye. You've been listening to Circle Back. To subscribe, visit ec.co slash circle back and follow, rate, and review the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Circle Back is made possible by the generous support of the Beth and Randy Chase family. Also, thank you to our media partner, Nashville Post. Keep your pulse on all things Nashville business and more by subscribing to their newsletter at nashvillepost.com. And a shout out to our friends at Lightning 100 for supporting the show. A big thanks to our team from our creator and executive producer, Greg Allen. Script writing by Demetria Kaladimos. And a big thank you to the rest of the EC staff. I'm Clark Buckner, and we'll see you soon on another episode of Circle Back. <laughs>